Hey, will you keep that last um, line up there? There we go. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That is a good summarization of everything we've studied in the eight chapters of Romans 1 through 8. That is the conclusion that in Christ alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, we land on this, this confidence that we can have. And we looked at that the last couple weeks, especially landing in Romans 8 and that grand crescendo at the end of that passage. We have been in Romans 1 through 8, which is the first major section of Romans. Honestly, it could be a book in and of itself very easily. Um, Chapters 9 through 11 are a, a second section that we'll look at, like we said, in January. And then verses 12 through 16 is the third and final section, but the first major section. And I would say most important section when it comes to the gospel and to salvation and to coming to that conclusion that we sang this morning and having confidence in our salvation, the most important sections. We have spent 20 months in those eight chapters. Now, in those months, there were times in which I didn't preach in Romans for one reason or another. There were times of uh, me being gone and, and other things, and there were uh, Christmas messages and such. But it's been 20 months since we began. And so what we're going to do, just to give you a little plan of preaching here, this week and next week, I'm going to do an overview of those eight chapters, just calling, calling your attention to the essentials, what I'm calling the essentials of those, those first eight chapters. And then we're going to move on from those, and I have, um, I think, now I could change my mind on this, but I think that we're going to be looking for a handful of weeks leading into Christmas time at the Deuteronomy chapter 6, what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I think we're going to look, uh, unpack verses 4 through 9 in that for a few weeks, and then it'll be time for a couple Christmas messages And then I have an idea for a couple of New Year's messages, and then we will return to Romans chapter 9. So so we won't be in it for a while, and we're done with Romans 1 through 8. So I just want to make sure that the things that need to be emphasized in this letter are being emphasized as before we move on. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time in this introduction. Let's just read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace 
and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask his blessing on his word. Father, as always, we need to pause before we look into the details of this passage, having just read it. Before we look into more details in the book of Romans, we just ask that you would help us, please. Guide us into truth. Edify your people. Save your people. Encourage them. Gift me now so that these are not just, this isn't a speech or a lecture, but actually a sermon of the preached word so that you can be glorified and your people can be helped. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. The first thing I want to remind you of, and I think is, it's essential for us to understand about the whole book of Romans in your Bible is that it isn't really a book. This is a letter. I always like to remind us of that. There's a certain personableness that is in a letter. Books are often written just to generally to anybody who cares to read them. That's how we often think about a book. But when we talk about a letter, there is a significance to that in that it is personable. And this letter, of course, originally was written by Paul, the apostle, to a particular church, a church that wouldn't have been a whole lot different than ours. I recognize that living in Rome 2,000 years ago, they would have dressed differently than we do and spoke a different language than we do and had different worldviews and such than we would have, but they were just people. They were just people like you and me most of whom probably were very average people, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles together in this one assembly in Rome or perhaps multiple home churches if they didn't have room to meet in one, but all under the heading of the church in Rome, interconnected together as the body of Christ. Average people. And that when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it specifically to everyone in that church. This was not a letter that was written only to the elder, pastor, overseers. This was not a letter written to just the leaders in the church or some of the church. This was a letter written to all the church. You'll notice that in verse 7. He's addressing this letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. All those in Rome who were the children of God, called to belong to Jesus Christ, not just certain ones. Friends, when you're reading the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, I recognize that there are things in here that are difficult to understand. The Apostle Peter himself said that about 
Paul's writings that there are things that are difficult to understand, though I often think that that's the pot calling the kettle black because I find things in Peter's writings that are difficult to understand as well. But as you're reading all of it, including those sections that are challenging to understand, challenging to wrap your minds around, realize that it is Paul's intention that you actually read them. That he wrote them with you in mind. And if we keep in reminder of even the scripture that we read for our scripture reading earlier for 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture including Paul's writings here to the Roman church, all scripture is breathed out by God that it wasn't just Paul's intention now to write this letter to that entire church. It was God's intention that that letter be written to the entire church. These are God's words in a letter format to the church at Rome and then to all the believers who would follow after that church through all these centuries right down to this little church in Grand Junction, Colorado. And it is designed, notice this, and you could apply this to all of God's word, but think about it when you're reading Romans. What's the goal behind this? Look at it again at verse seven. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's heart and mind is that all the people of God, as they're read this letter, as they're reading this letter, through it, through the letter itself, receive grace from God, which they desperately need, and peace from God, which they so desperately need. Friends, don't you recognize even in your own heart and life, on a daily basis, how much you need grace from God. We sang it earlier. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. What is one of the ways in which God grants to his people the grace and peace that they need to walk through whatever day he has assigned to them and designed for them. Friends, through his holy word. Through the Bible, God intends for you. He intends to communicate to you the grace and the peace you need to face whatever it is that lays before you this week. It's the intention of Scripture. It's divine design to help the people of God, you see. We need this. We need His Word. We need worship services saturated in Scripture as we come together each week. We need our daily experience and lives to include Scripture from God, grace being communicated. There's a reason they call the Scriptures and corporate worship and everything that we're participating in this way the means of grace. Not as though it communicates a saving grace to you, but these are the means by which God grants grace to His people to live for Him, keep trusting in Him, to grow in Him. It's very important to understand no matter where we're at, no matter where we're reading or where I'm preaching in the letter to 
the Roman church to understand that grace and peace from God and our Lord Jesus Christ is God's intention in this letter. Read it that way. Read your Bible that way at home. Open it up and say, oh God, I need grace and I need peace. Not the peace like the world gives, not a situational peace. I need peace that's communicated to my heart and soul. And I know that's the intention of your word. Please help me now. Please communicate this grace by your spirit to my inner man through your written word. This is the intention of all of scripture. As a matter of fact, even the Old Testament of our Bibles, believe it or not, the Old Testament of our Bibles is designed to help the church. Paul will say as such in Romans 15 verse 4. He says, for whatever was written in former days. He's talking about the Old Testament, friends. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see the intention? All of scripture, that divine intention, not just our instruction, though that's a part of it. Friends, you cannot have the grace, the peace that flows from it, the encouragement that flows from scripture unless you're instructed in it, you see. Unless you're taught in it, unless you know it, unless you understand it, and then as you grow in that, then what does God do? He uses his word to encourage you and give you hope. And what is hope in the book of Romans? It's the confident expectation of future glory with Jesus Christ. And isn't that what you need every day on a daily basis? You need encouragement You need hope. You need your eyes refocused, not on things of this earth, but on things to come, you see. Knowing that there's a day coming in which Christ is going to glorify us all, make us like himself with his very own power. That's our hope. Friends, did you know, as a pastor preacher, that it is my True prayer, and I can say this without any hypocrisy or falseness. I have a lot of uh, faults, flaws, sins, failures. But I can tell you one thing I do every week, and I think it's right, is that I beg God to enable me by his spirit to encourage his people through the word of God. Every week this is the case. Even in weeks when I have fallen so short of the glory of God in various ways and I'll just say, God, not for me, not for me, but for your people's sake, please help me to encourage them through the word of God. This is our prayer each week as we gather and before the service and the prayer team helps with this and we pray about The service, we're praying in one way or another for the encouragement and the help and the strengthening of all of God's people who come out. But that's why, friends, we focus so intensely on Sunday mornings on the Word of God. I have people that visit here and they'll say, there's so much Bible in your service. The scriptures are read throughout the whole service, woven into the singing. 
there's an expositional sermon from the text, explaining the text, and God willing, bringing the points right from the passage, I'll say, that's so different, that's so unique. And I say, that's so sad. Because what has God given to his people to give them encouragement and hope? His word. What a gift it is. This is why we do what we do. This is why you read the word so much in the service. What I say is a tsunami of the Bible. The people should just have a tsunami of God's word through this whole time. You know, one of the truths that was recaptured in the Reformational period was that the Bible was for all the people of God, not just for the priests or the clergy or those assigned by the church to know it. When the Reformation period began, there were no translations of Scripture into the common languages. Like English, as as a matter of fact. And the reason that's the case, and all of of their services in the Scripture, the only Scripture they had was was one that was translated almost a millennia previous, was that of the Latin translation. The Latin Vulgate is what it's called. And even though most of the people did not speak Latin, had no access into the Scriptures, that's the way the Roman church wanted it. They did not believe that average people in a church should have in their possession scriptures that they can read because the interpretation should only be reserved for the clergy, for the priests, for the church, for popes and councils. And therefore, why would the church need the Bible? And furthermore, when the church gets the Bible in hand, there's only problems that are created What was captured, even through men like William Tyndale, who lived in the late 1400s and early 1500s, he had a burning desire to get the Bible into the English language. He was an Englishman, and he wanted everyone, right down to the quote-unquote lowest of societies, to have access to the Bible. And so he began translating in the New Testament and produced what was the first English New Testament Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church did not like this, so they persecuted him. They tracked him down, they tied him to a stake, they strangled him to death, and then burnt his body to ashes. Out of the Reformation grew the fruit of an understanding that all of the Bible is for all of the people of God. You have a translation right now, and many of them as a fruit of the Reformation period. Don't ever underestimate what God was doing in that time and the fruit that was born from it. Not all of the Reformers had things right. They didn't. You'll read things about them and you'll say, well, that doesn't seem right. But know this, God used those men to bring about what we have now. Do you realize when I say to you every Sunday morning, I say, turn in your scriptures to this passage. Now join me in this. And I'll preach, a pas- I'll preach from the passage. I'll actually say what the passage is saying. And I'll say, now you see where I get this out of verse such and such? Understand, friends, that didn't come from Roman Catholicism. That came from the Reformational time. 
Because what was recaptured was that the people of the word of God was for the people of God and the word must be preached just as we read earlier in 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word in season and out of season. Do this consistently. Let me tell you, when I say, please turn in your Bibles with me, or I say, these are the very words of God, understand that the devil hates those words. He hates them. The devil does not want the word of God in the possession of his people because with the word of God comes power and transformation and salvation and courage and strength to help his people, God's people, to shine as lights in this age, to share the gospel with others. That means every time that we gather together for a worship service, we are in spiritual warfare There is a battle going on. And Jesus said it like this, whenever somebody sows the word, like seeds, they're sowing the word, that the devil comes along and snatches it up. When you come to church on a Sunday morning or you get up in the morning to read your scriptures or whenever you read your scriptures, whatever time of day works for you, that's spiritual warfare, friends. You're going to battle. You need to know that in your mind. The devil doesn't want you in the word of God. It's the last thing he wants is for God's people to be in the word of God with the right heart and mind, receiving from the Lord instruction, getting encouragement and hope, faith being built, you see, peace being given. He doesn't want that of God's people. Scripture is for all the people of God to communicate God's intention of grace and peace. Don't forget that this is a letter, but it's also, friends, and I need to say this. The book of Romans, it's essential for us to know this. The letter of Romans is an authoritative letter. When I say that these are the words of God, it means it comes with, listen to this, no less than the absolute sovereign authority of God himself. This word is the authoritative word of God. It is these words in this letter and in this entire Bible that are to govern our faith and our life and our practice and our worship. These words... They come with God's authority. It says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, listen to this now, called to be an apostle. Called by whom? Remember we talked about that calling? There's the salvation calling, but then there's other callings that God issues, isn't there? Calling certain men with certain offices of authority, like the office of apostle. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When Paul writes those words, it isn't, it isn't just an unnecessary part of his introduction. It's setting the tone for the whole letter. That as I'm writing these things to you, what I'm writing to you comes not from me, but from God. Therefore, you line yourself up under what I say. Not not because of who I am, Saul of Tarsus or Paul, 
but because of what God has made me, an apostle with authority. And therefore, the words that I'm delivering to you come not from me, but from God. The very word apostle meant sent one, emissary, sent on the behalf of another, someone of a higher position in order to speak on behalf of that person. That's the idea. All these apostles come from Jesus Christ, are instructed by Jesus Christ, and therefore they go out teaching from Jesus Christ. This is an authoritative letter. If you are new to the Bible, friends, you need to know this. This is Christianity 101, that this book is not any other book. This book is the authoritative words of God, and therefore you must You must submit your entire life under these teachings, you see. You put all of your faith into God's word and you put all of your obedience into God's word, you see. It comes with authority. Everybody look at your, if you've got a Bible here in front of you, especially one of our pew Bibles, look at the cover of this. Most of these will say, the Holy Bible. Did you notice that? The Holy Bible. The word Bible, by the way, is, comes from the Greek word biblion, which just means book. But it has that very important adjective modifying it, doesn't it? This isn't just the book or a book. This is the holy book. This is the sacred book. The book in which God has set apart uniquely among all other books. In 2 Timothy 3, remember, these are called the sacred writings. They're set apart by God for the people of God. God has declared this book a holy book. God has declared Romans a holy letter. It comes from him. It's trustworthy, reliable, and authoritative. and comes with the authority of God himself. And friends, in Romans, this approach is very important to see this letter as authoritative. Because as we're reading through it and as we're studying through it as a congregation and you come across things that Paul is saying, that you understand what he's saying, but it's challenging some of your preconceived ideas about things. You must understand that you need to submit to what is being said in God's holy word. In other words, it's always, it's always necessary for the Christian person to realign or readjust our thinking. Some of the scariest things I've ever heard Christians say were something along this line. I know what the Bible says, but... I know the Bible says that, but I think or I feel or I believe. You see, friends, what you're doing when you do that is you are saying, God's word has some authority, but my feelings are of a higher authority. What I think is of a higher authority, you see, than the Bible. That's not the way it works, is it? 
God's authority is the sole authority. The reformers recaptured this in sola scriptura. It is the sole authority. It isn't on an equal plane with the teachings of the church and their councils and their decrees and what the Pope says when he speaks ex cathedra. It isn't on the same plane. No, it is the authoritative teaching of God's word. This is why James says in James chapter 1, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You receive the word with meekness. You go in and with a, a, just that humble mind that you know this is God's word and you're wanting him to instruct you, him to teach you, him to tell you what to do. Do you receive his word with a willingness to bend and flex and yield your preconceived notions and beliefs In order to align your thinking with God's, that would be receiving with meekness the implanted word. And James 1, 21 to 22 says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. You see, it's so important that we not only have the reception of God's word, the willingness to believe God's word, but friends, we need the willingness to do God's word. To obey everything that we find on the pages of Scripture, to apply it into our lives in the way God intends us to apply it. This is what we'll look at in the Shema, of course, of Deuteronomy uh, 6. And I keep calling it Shema because that's the Hebrew word for listen. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he quoted it. And something the Jews to this very day, devout Jews anyway, quote two times every day, once in the morning. And once in the evening, he says, Hear, O Israel, hear with the intention to respond with faith and obedience. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, or when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Can you see that connection? Listen to me. Here is my word. Have it always on your mind and heart. Pass it on diligently to your children. It should be a conversation within your home. This is the idea of understanding what God's holy word actually it is. And there is a way we've tried to help with applying this in our study through Romans is giving you memory verses that you could look at for each Chapter and those are always in the weekly email or we can get those to you another way if you don't get that. But most of you have probably, some of you have probably memorized all the ones we have there anyway. But it's good to have these in your mind and in your heart. Romans is an authoritative letter. In Romans, its key purpose from Paul, especially in the first eight verse, uh, chapters, is to unfold the gospel. It's to unfold the gospel. Look again at verse 1. Paul, an apo- a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel, friends, that he's unfolding. By the way, the word gospel, of course, means good news. It's a declaration of good news. It comes from God. It's the gospel of God. Entrusted to Paul, but it is God's gospel that he is having proclaimed among the nations. It's uniquely, notice this, the gospel concerning his son, verse 3. When you're talking about the gospel, remember, you're talking about Jesus Christ. You're talking about the son of God. He's the centerpiece of this message. It's about him. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, if you're doing the work of the evangelist, then what you're doing is sharing the good news about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you see. You notice he was born a man, descended from David, the promised Messiah. The gospel says so clearly that the eternal Son of God who created him all things And in whom all things exist, he himself became a man descended from David just as the Old Testament promised. So the good news of the gospel isn't that we need to work our way up to God, but the good news of the gospel is that God has come down to us. He doesn't say, work your way to salvation. He says, salvation has come to you in my son, you see, descended from David. And don't miss that important phrase, descended from David according to the flesh, because in that one statement, Paul takes hold, friends, of the whole Old Testament. I mean from Genesis to Malachi. He takes hold of the whole Old Testament and brings it right into the New Testament for the New Testament people of God, because see, being descended from David was a fulfillment of the promises of all the Old Testament. The Messiah to come would come through the seed of David. That was a theme that was built all the way from Genesis chapter three on. This is why in explaining the gospel, Paul will, as he unfolds it in the letter to the Romans, he will always be referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel is nothing new in that sense. This is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. And friends, it's so important to capture this essential that the first eight chapters that we have studied, the first eight chapters that we have studied in this letter had very few commands. I don't know if you notice that. Very few commands for us to do. There's a reason that's the case is because the gospel is not a declaration of doing things It's the declaration of what God has done in his son Jesus to save you. Man, if you could grasp one thing from the first eight chapters, I'd say make it something related to that. The gospel is not a list or series of commands for the people of God to do in order to be made right with God It's a declaration, it's the good news of what God has done through his uh, son to make sinners right with himself. This is why 
the Philippian jailer, when Paul encountered him in the book of Acts and he cried out, sirs, what shall I do to be saved? Paul's explaining that, by the way, in the first eight chapters of Romans. How would you explain that to someone who asks you that question? They're under the conviction of sin. Let's say they've come to that point. They know they're sinners. They know there's a judgment coming. They've come to that decision. And they say to you, what, what should I do to be saved? I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to bear the wrath of God and I know I'm a sinner. And What do I need to do? It's, you know, so simple God has made this for us. Paul told that Philippian jailer when he was asked that very question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the essential of the book of Romans. We are saved by grace alone, not by our merit. Through faith alone, not by our works. In Christ alone, the eternal Son of God. We are granted forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life through faith in Him alone. You put your trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's the whole message of the gospel as Paul summarizes it in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Are you living by that kind of gospel faith this morning? So easy for us to slip back into a pattern of legalism. By that I mean, I can't be right with God today because I haven't been loving him as I ought. I haven't been doing enough. I haven't been praying enough. I haven't been serving enough. I don't have the right feelings. How can I be right with God? Friends, you're right with God through faith in Christ because Jesus did enough. He did everything required for you in his life and then on the cross and in his resurrection. And as Paul reminded us last week in Romans 8, he is right now interceding for you. Think about that. Right this moment, the one who has been declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, this Jesus Christ our Lord is interceding for you. You trust in him. Don't look for your own rightness. Don't look for your own performance. Don't look for your own righteousness. Don't trust in your feelings. Trust in Jesus Christ, friends, and you will be saved. That's the essential of Romans 1 through 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this good news. We celebrate it. We believe it. We profess it. And I pray that it would be on everyone's heart and mind and even God as we transfer now into the Lord's table on this great privilege we have of being reminded of the centrality of the cross and the death of Christ for us. And I pray that you would nourish the souls of your people 
And Father, can I ask as we partake in the Lord's Supper that in a special way this morning, by your spirit, we would all be enabled to sense and feel the presence of Christ in us and with us. I ask this in his name. Amen.